Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? October is not just the scariest month of the year. It's also a very important month in the themed entertainment industry. That's right. October is Sensory Awareness Month, and it's an incredibly important topic and one we haven't breached yet on this podcast. And we're really excited to announce that we have two very important guests uh, to uh, help us talk about it. And uh, we now will ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, this is Emily Howard, and I'm a vice president at PGAV Destinations, and I'm an architect and exhibit designer. And what I do is I actually lead our group that designs zoos and aquariums. And so I get to have a lot of fun every single day thinking about animals and how people can interact with animals and just to make a guest experience that's fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's uh, it's so great to have uh, guests that are experts in this field. And I'm really excited to talk about uh, the importance of sensory awareness and how we can use it to build more inclusive uh, themed spaces. And Tammy? Hi, so I'm Tammy Brown, and um, I am the executive director of the St. Louis Aquarium, which will open later this year, and we're so excited about that. Um, my background, I'm so lucky that I've had a fantastically fun career in tourism, focused mostly on museums and attractions. As a matter of fact, I opened the Cleveland Aquarium, which is also in a historic building, just like the St. Louis Aquarium will be in a historic building. And uh, so I guess that's now I, my specialty, and I just did air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so that's so excellent. We're so excited to talk to you, and thank you so much for, for being here. This is... Uh, just just a treat we're so excited so let's just dive right in let's uh let's get started by uh let's define sensory awareness for our audience uh what is it why is it important in themed entertainment and how has it been underrepresented in designs of the past so sensory awareness is the understanding that a lot of people process sensations differently some studies even say it's one in six people and this includes people of all ages, all demographics, um, from the autism spectrum to those that suffer from PTSD and Alzheimer's. So it's really a wide range of situations. Um, if you think about it, the goal of aquarium zoos, theme parks, it's really to connect people, to bring them together, to discover something new, really, or, or enjoy themselves together. Um, and historically, that has involved a lot of lights and loud noises and music and bright designs. And for those who are um, sensitive to uh, sensory inputs, that becomes a challenge. And so when we say, how is it underrepresented in designs of the past, there hasn't really been a solution offered. So that's in the past, it's only recently that I think attractions like the aquarium or museums have really understood that um, they're missing a whole lot of guests who are not enjoying their experience. And obviously we want everybody who sets foot into the door to have a fantastic time. And so it's become something that we're really focusing on. How can we make sure that those who process and those uh, sensations differently are also included and thought about and um, have a great visit. You know, your, your question made me think about this a little differently too, just thinking about theme parks and 
really any attraction and how they have evolved. And Tammy alluded to that, that, you know, these uh, aquariums, zoos, theme parks, museums kind of started out as roadside attractions or uh, a lot smaller, simpler, sometimes a passive kind of experience. And over time, we've become way more thematic, as you know, where we transport guests to different places or tell a, a story. They're way more thrilling, way more interactive. We're introducing technology a lot. And all of those things over time have added up to really cool things, whiz-bang things that, that you get to experience. But like Tammy said, it's missing a lot of people who um, can't deal with that in the same way as others. And so trying to figure out, okay, how do we keep that experience rich and still tell the stories, but really reach 100% of the people instead of just, you know, maybe 75 or 80% of the people. That's amazing that... Um that it's it's amazing that to hear of people who work in in these fields who are so understanding and so um so open to the idea of of changing maybe how things have always been or or and opening up uh environments to people of all uh, of people of all kinds and of all of all different needs and um and we really appreciate that and and how we hope that becomes more of a norm kind of all around um we talk a lot on the show about the language of environmental design and how places tell their stories through details in the environment and like architecture with a purpose. Has there been any kind of new vocabulary of of the design process that's pop, popped up in um, while moving towards a more inclusive sensory experience for all guests? Um, I don't know if it's a broad vocabulary, but I know things that continually pop up as we discuss this in-house or with clients um, is both awareness and acceptance. So the first big hurdle is just being aware of that and um, knowing that what you're designing, you know, first you think crazy outside the box, big ideas, but then as you start to refine that idea and understand how people will interact with it, no matter what it is, if it's a coaster or if it's a stingray touch pool or whatever it might be, then you want to make sure that you're being inclusive and that you really are accepting all people. So I think those are kind of the two words that we tend to use a lot as we're kind of analyzing our own designs. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me in uh, what we were just talking about is, is this idea that uh, we experience themed spaces with so many more senses than we might other media and that's part of what makes them uh so interesting to us as like a, a thing to study but also what can make them uh challenging to design or or perhaps uh overwhelming to certain guests who have like you said this this uh difference in prop uh processing sensory information so there's so much more going on with theme design uh and how uh, we're thinking about it for these for for these guests with differing needs. Um, so, what is like the like when when we're asking guests to feel a certain way? What is like the main strategy of uh, kind of allowing for that uh, awareness and that acceptance? Like, what what sorts of things are being added to themed spaces that kind of speak to that? Well, namely. It's thinking about how to allow people to opt out if something is too um, 
too much overload for them. So um, one thing that a lot of people do is have spaces where you can move aside or take a break, etc. So we think about that quite a bit. Um, also, ways to deal with it are having basically planning ahead, having packs that guests can either check out or that they can just have with their visit. And it might have things like headphones or um, a fidget device or different things in it that can allow that person to, if they start to feel overwhelmed or if mom or dad recognizes that this could be a trigger and I, you know, I need to, to think about this with my child, that it gives them the opportunity to step aside, take a little bit of time, but then re-engage. So we think about that with um, places to sit down, places to get out of um, perhaps lights or sound, um, just areas that, that are conducive to a, a calming factor. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, when when I was thinking about um, like ways ways that uh, themed attractions uh, might be, uh, I, I guess where they where they might be uh, more difficult to design for sensory awareness. What I was imagining was uh, like shows and uh, like rides mm-hmm. where guests are kind of locked into a certain experience. Uh, for the entirety of the experience, uh, for safety's mm-hmm. sake, more often than not. Uh, so, so what sorts of things are happening in that area as well? You know, that's a lot tougher <clears throat> for the reasons that you talk about. But even so, if you're in a queue, say you are in a queue for a show or even at like a, a Disney ride or something, and you know how long those can be and how stimulating. Um But even there, you could have areas where you could pull aside. Or like I said, these packs could help where, you know, mom could put on the headphones for their child or something like that. So those kinds of things can happen. But it is really difficult because you're trying to create a story a lot of times from beginning to end for that guest. Um, So it can become a little bit interrupted for that that person. Um, There also are sensory days a lot in attractions. So they may have a day where we're going to turn the lights down low or maybe turn them off. If it's an exterior attraction, you may not really need flashing lights. And we're going to make sure that the music is either off or low again so that um, that sensory overload doesn't happen as much or at all. And so that's been a a thing that I've seen pervasive in the attractions industry that people are doing quite often. That's really fascinating. I, uh, I'm really interested in that. Uh, Alice, do you think you want to move us into our third question? Yeah, uh, I want to talk about the St. Louis Aquarium since uh, we have you here. Uh, the, so the St. Louis Aquarium is going to be uh, one of the most sensory inclusive aquariums in the world. What were some of the choices that were made during the design process that ensure that all guests will be able to enjoy the animal attractions in, in ways that work for them? Yeah, so Emily definitely covered some of them, um, the what have become industry best practices. But more than a year ago, we identified um, Culture City as a great partner to work with to develop the design and the and then the training and the um, implementation. They're an organization in Alabama that focuses on sensory inclusion for public spaces. And so we've been working with them for all of that time. We will have a space that is called our calming corner. Um, Within the design, it's a room that parents um, 
or anybody can go to if they feel like they just need to step away for a little bit. Um, it'll have soft spaces and um, it'll be quiet, soundproof. Everything from paint colors to the flooring materials, the lighting, everything is meant to relax and calm, as the name says. And there's a, a really cool piece to that, which is that it's called Calming Quarter so that it kind of matches what the Missouri Botanical Garden and the St. Louis Zoo are both calling their areas. So that if you're a family, that you can go and you, you know to look for something called the Calming Corner. I think that's just a fantastic detail. That's really nice. But then nice. there's a second part to it as well, which is really the training. And so you can design a whole bunch of stuff, but then if the team that's working there isn't um, prepared to help families if they need help or to identify if a group might need um, some direction to get to the calming corner or the um, ability to grab one of the packs, then, then it's not as effective. So we will put all of our team members through the uh, Culture City uh, training so that they're better able to identify people who may be having a sensory um, situation and to help them to have the most successful visit possible. That's uh, wonderful. I'm, I'm really interested in the idea that this is a uh, kind of a unifying factor between multiple attractions. Uh, and I, I'm kind of interested in th this idea of the Calming Corner as kind of an accessible space for just about anybody who feels the need to calm down is it sort of integrated into the natural flow of the aquarium sort of in a in a space that makes sense and is kind of open uh or is it kind of off to the side farther away uh kind of in its own area it really is kind of in its own area and that's on purpose so the calming corner is about halfway through your journey through the aquarium um, it is just off of an area that is going to be really active. It has touch pools, it has a kid's space, it is right next to a ropes course. Um, it's very open, it's very bright, all things that really could be <laughs> um, a challenge. So, so this space will allow you to just go right down a hallway. It's not like you have to walk a, a long way, but it's, it, it is then, it's very close, but then it is a, away from all of that hustle and bustle and um, will be a great place to step away if you need to. That's fantastic. That's so excellent. Yeah, I, I love the idea that it's kind of right in the middle where, uh, in the in the middle of all of the most uh, potentially challenging things for guests, that's that's amazing. Uh, so we've, we've kind of moved through a lot of our questions really quickly, but one thing that we're interested in specifically with animal attractions is this idea of the trifecta of design. Uh, we talked to uh, Dave and John from PGAV Destinations the other week, and they were telling us that, you know, we have to consider three main things. The animal's comfort uh, when it comes to the animal attraction, the ability of the staff to do their caretaking work, and then also the enjoyment of the audience. Uh, when it comes to sensory inclusiveness, are there additional considerations being taken for the animals and staff in charge of taking care of the animals uh, as far as how we're designing exhibits uh, or is it uh, mostly focused on guest experience when we when we do these additional design things? Yeah, to be honest, from the animal standpoint, it is um, not so much of a factor. 
uh, we, the, the health and well-being of our animals is our highest priority. And that, that doesn't, um, that doesn't change no matter what guests are or no guests. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We're, we're taking great care of our animals. Um, and so it, the guest training is really the key piece and then the design piece which PGAV has so thoughtfully included. Um, those are the two pieces more so in that particular trifecta, as you say, than, than anything. Now that definitely makes sense. Uh, so, so are there any choices along the way as far as like uh, lighting design for animals or things like that, where you're saying like, uh, maybe, maybe blue here instead of green, because that might be uh, more in line with uh, our sensory awareness, or are we, we really are just thinking more like the usual choices for these animals to make sure that they're always comfortable um, versus uh, anything else? Well, well, you know, your question just made me think of something interesting, which is that flashing lights are horrible for our animals. Huh. And they're horrible for our guests who have sensory. So... Maybe some of the design that is for our animals' well-being will actually uh, be a welcome piece for all of our guests. Um, aquariums, in general, are known to be, and research has shown, very relaxing spaces. And they can, you know, the studies have shown they reduce your heartbeat if you sit in front of a, a big aquarium space and. Um, that's why you see so many fish tanks, if you will, in dentist's office and doctor's offices, <laughs> because it is naturally relaxing. So I feel like some of the things that we do to keep our animals healthy and safe are actually going to have an impact on our guests with sensory, um, sensory sensitivities. That yeah, is absolutely. That is so interesting and uh, it never really occurred to me to, th to think that but yeah you would the flashing light wouldn't necessarily be something that occurs uh in the wilds you wouldn't have strobe lights going on all the time so it's yeah you uh you want to keep that uh separate you want to separate that from the zoo and aquarium experience for sure Alice, um, you've obviously never visited the infamous strobe forests of Northern California, <laughs> uh, which which are indeed terrifying. <laughs> it sounds like a place I want to avoid at all costs. But <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was thinking about uh, the St. Louis Aquarium being in this uh, repurposed historical building uh, and how that might have impacted design choices made along the way. Uh, are, what, was the building kind of set up for this uh, sort of thing? Maybe this is just more general. When we're thinking about the aquarium being in this repurposed building, uh, what sorts of uh, differences in design uh, choices were we making because this was like a, uh, a unique space that sort of had to be preserved along the way as well? So we're lucky in St. Louis to have such a beautiful building that is on the National Historic Register. Um, and a lot of it is preserved, original. I mean, it's it's quite a beautiful space. So we thought this is an opportunity as well as a challenge, but it's quite an opportunity to put a new use to this old building. Um, was it set up for an aquarium? Absolutely not. <laughs> it was a challenge. Um, but I kind of welcome those challenges. One of the things that we had to consider was historics. 
So we had meetings very early on um, with the historic committee to make sure that as we began design, we weren't doing things that um, they ultimately wouldn't agree with. And that really had to do with keeping open view corridors. Um, we had the whole roof, which, so the aquarium is inside the old train shed, which has been enclosed, it was enclosed in the 80s. So it actually is a weather protected area. Um, but, you know, that all had to remain open because they wanted to keep the, the, the sense of the old train station, which ends up being really beautiful, I think. And so the second floor of the aquarium, particularly where the kids have a lot of um, interactivity, is all open to that train shed roof. Beautiful natural light comes in and it's just a, it's a really cool space. So I think, you know, weaving all of the different tanks and fish through this train shed was, was pretty fun. And it makes for a really fun experience too. Um, the other piece of that was, okay, so we've got a, an old train station and we have an aquarium that we want to be, you know, state of the art, you know, fun thing. How in the world do you weave these two things together in a storyline? So that was one of the things that we had a great time talking about at PGAV and brainstorming what that means. And ultimately, um, it's a story about transportation, about movement. And, you know, all of our water from what comes out of our tap flows in, you know, in lakes, flow into rivers, flow down to bayous and out into the Gulf, out into the ocean. So it's all connected. And then we started thinking about that story and thinking about how the trains were so essential to St. Louis back in the early 1900s, late 1800s. It connected everything. It connected our, our country. So again, there's that connection and transportation. And so we just took that and ran with it. So guests will experience a storyline uh, that's fun because they're going on an adventure in a train, but wow, the experience they're going to have because suddenly they're, you know, dumped into the rivers and, and what, what beholds inside the river for them. So it's, a, it's an exciting experience. It was a fun story to develop. Um, I have not been on this project since the beginning, um, but I heard a little bit of stuff that I want to even ask Emily about, which is that when they first started developing um, and demo, dem, doing demolition for the aquarium, they had to follow, of course, the architectural oh, yeah. drawings that were from the 1800s <laughs> yes. and maybe not quite as detailed. <laughs> right. So talk about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we had... Um, from Theodore Link, who is a renowned architect. And literally, I think there were three sheets of drawings, and that's about it. Oh <laughs> and my now gosh. we have, I think we have hundreds in our set right now. Um, so it was really, when they designed things back then, they definitely detailed things very well, and there are some beautiful, beautiful drawings from him. But we didn't have a lot of, okay, so this wall isn't quite where it was, and what's underground? We had, a lot about what was underground and of course all those things are important and then over time you know as they uh changed electricity and you know, it changed into a mall for goodness sake there were walls everywhere and so um anyway the original drawings as beautiful as they were weren't as helpful as we hoped oh my so what we ended up doing is working with the contractor uh and we said you know we need to know all these things we could measure it and take a long time to do that 
but they had a uh, way of doing it, uh, just image mapping the entire facility so that we knew exactly where walls were. They did a lot of hand digging to understand exactly where foundations were, where some of the underground utilities ran, and then mapped all of this electronically so that we had that to start from, which was, that was invaluable to the project for sure. Uh, speaking as a complete uh, novice and uh, somebody who knows nothing, I would guess that the utility needs of an aquarium uh, vastly differ from a mall or a train station. So was there <laughs> yes. was there a lot of overhauling there that uh, went on once you had all the plans? Yeah, um, you know, it's a hotel too. And so there there's a lot of power there. Thank goodness there was some, but yeah, that was carefully looked at from the electrical engineering side, um, that they had to look at what the loads currently were and what the new loads are. And with all the life support systems or LSS as we call it, which basically keeps all of the tanks clean and all the animals alive and keeps their water exactly the right chemistry, um, all of that takes power. And so each of those things had to be very carefully planned. And we thought about what exhibits could also go together so that there was a little bit of economy there as well. Um, and that's a whole nother uh, discussion probably, but um, you know, tanks have to be the same temperature and similar species and that kind of thing for the, for the systems to run together. So as we were developing ideas about species, um, that was one of the considerations for sure. I would guess that a lot of people would think that water would be our biggest utility use um, for an aquarium, but in fact, it is definitely electricity. Um, a lot of our water, we reclaim, we clean, we filter, we reclaim it and um, put it back in the exhibits so we can keep using the same water, but not the same electricity. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, wild. <laughs> I definitely would have assumed water as your biggest utility. That's what I was when you started talking about electricity. I was like, oh yeah, that's wow. Oh man, you learn something new every day. Um, <laughs> I'm so this is this is the best. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I wanted to, to come back around to the uh, sensory awareness conversation. Um, I wanted to ask, what kind of um, technologies um, do you use most often when creating, like a like a, a sensory appropriate space? Um, and uh, and especially want to know what kind of technology do you hope gets developed in the future, or that you you want to work on in the future um, that you can use in building uh, accessible and inclusive spaces. Sure, so um, I can't reveal too, too much about the technology at St. Louis Aquarium because that's, that's a surprise and it'll be a, a big deal for everybody. But one thing we did consider is um, the ongoing conversation or battle per se about whether you want to allow people to use their phone in an experience such as this or not. And a lot of people say, well, we're on our phones. Of course we want to use it. We want to interact somehow digitally but at the same time, the other side of the coin is you need to experience what's in front of you and see the beauty of these animals and talk to a person about why this animal's unique or you know learn more about it by communicating and actually seeing the natural life. So there's kind of two sides to that coin and both are valid 
And I think both can live in harmony. And that was one thing that we tried to do uh, with the aquarium is make, make these two things balance each other and enhance each other. Um, one thing that I wish we could do is make every attraction um, 100% unique to each person. And I know somewhere somebody is working on this for sure. But how do you make it so that when I walk in, um, it's totally unique to me and what I want to do and what I want to see, but yet also not super reliant on that technology. I still want to experience whatever it is, if it's a natural thing or if it's um, an artifact in a museum or you know a, a coaster at a theme park. How do we balance all that, but also make it super unique? And I think that talks to our sensory awareness too, in that if something starts to get overloaded, my device or whatever it might be, this techno technology that I'm using would be able to notice that and direct me in a different way or make the experience different for me um, without interrupting all the people around me or my family that I'm with or whatever that might be. So I suspect somebody's working on it and I haven't heard about it yet, but that would be pretty darn cool if we could make something like that. Yeah, it, it feels like when we're talking about sensory awareness, we're we're talking about not just one set of needs, right? We're talking about mm -hmm. uh, wildly differing uh, things that could possibly be triggering or things that could be overwhelming to guests. Uh, and I think I think the idea of providing as much guest choice and autonomy as possible <laughs> is is a good one. I, I also sometimes wonder if. Uh, there's a way to allow that level of tailoring that uh, that will work at all. I mean, I want it to work, but like, right, being able to change things in a way that it will work just for such a person, mm -hmm. uh, any person, is going to be, I think, a big challenge coming up for themed entertainment in general. Agreed. And I, I, there's su such great technologies that are out there, not only for, for um, this every guest to enjoy, but also for uh, things like folks who are blind or low vision to have audio descriptions of what is being seen by the rest of the group that they're with, or those who are deaf having a video sign language, um, or even 3D printed models of something so that a guest can manipulate it and really understand it in a different way, if that would be helpful. So technology definitely adds to the visit, no matter who the guest is, but certainly um, for some guests who could use a little extra interpretation, if you will. But then to Emily's point, actually having people on the floor to help um, help groups experience the, the exhibits or the learn about the fish or understand what they're seeing to the fullest extent, that just adds on to the technology. So they, they really do go hand in hand. Um, but I would I would hate to see a place that didn't have people yeah. and didn't somehow um, help people to connect in groups. Uh, that that would not be my highest and best <laughs> yeah, yeah. use for for an aquarium. Yeah, you guys have talked a, a couple of times about the uh, importance of staff training for sensory awareness and things like that. And, and this partnership with Culture City uh, and this idea that, uh, you know, every uh, every member of a staff can be helpful in creating a, a, sensor a sensorily aware environment, I'm sure 
that's not the term, but I'm gonna roll with it. <laughs> uh, and and I think I think it's really interesting how uh, how I think people are maybe the uh, the one technology that could unite any kind of an experience, right? Like as long as there's people involved, it's going to be something that we can do. And I, I love this idea that uh, as long as there are people involved to make those connections and help. Uh, guests as they run through uh, an environment or work through an environment or look through an environment uh, that they can facilitate the storytelling as well as the uh, sensory or emotional safety of guests. That's that's fantastic. I love it. Um, uh, is Were there any particular like strategies or uh, techniques that you can share about what uh, staff members are being trained on or, or things that they might be doing uh, in particular or uh, is that something we can't share? No, I'd be happy to share and, and maybe an example is the best. So if a family has a child that is on a sensory um, sensitivity spectrum and that child is having a meltdown because they're overwhelmed by what is around them it can be without training it can be hard for a team member to understand whether that child is just two years old and having a temper tantrum because they didn't get the sucker that they wanted or you know whatever <laughs> or if it really is some uh, family that would benefit from understanding about their, that the calming corner is there or that there are these sensory bags that could help them so the training will help our team to be able to identify how best to help a family depending on what their needs are. Um, and, and that is that something else that I hope to see, I don't know if it will be at opening, but I hope to see that we might add some team members who are uh, themselves have sensory sensitivity. Back in Cleveland, we had a couple of team members who were on the autism spectrum. And they were so passionate about our animals and the habitats and environment. And so they could engage our guests um, very well and, and really pull people in with their passion. Um, and to top that off, it was a fantastic thing for families with younger children who were on the spectrum we heard so many times from families who said, my daughter was so happy to see someone like her working at your aquarium. And so um, I think modeling and really getting to know a team member in that way has was so effective for the rest of our team to also understand the families and what they were experiencing in a much deeper way. And so my hope is that will be able to experience that as well and have some team members who can bring that awareness to um, the rest of the team as well. It's, uh, I'm really glad to hear you to hear you say that about that. And I can't wait to visit the St. Louis Aquarium. I'm, <laughs> the more I hear about it, the more excited I am. I want to see that train station. <laughs> it, well, let us know when you're in town. That's right. It is a, just a fantastic project. I'm so excited about it. That sounds wonderful. Uh, so guys, I think th those responses were fantastic. And, uh, one thing we like to do at the end of interviews like this is to kind of throw it back to our guests, uh, and ask them if they have any questions that they might want to ask our listening audience, uh, to kind of spark another discussion, uh, hopefully on the internet. Uh, yeah, we have a really active listener base, um, 
on Twitter, on the, our Discord server. We have so many of these conversations. Actually, we've gotten responses already to our last episodes, uh, the interviews that we've done. And uh, we wanted to know if there was anything, uh, any bigger conversation that you think um, that that you think fans should be having or um, or that you'd like to hear from people if they've got another perspective that we might have missed or uh, any anything that you think that we should that we should throw out to the audience. The only thing I would throw out is just, you know, what have we missed? Um, You know, we're we're. Um, as with any opening, we're doing the best we can to prepare. And then I'm sure that we'll discover things that we've missed in many different <laughs> um, areas. But um, if there's something we've missed for greeting and making our all of our guests uh, welcome, but certainly our um, sensory sensitive guests, please let us know. Right, exactly. And that is always so helpful because we love feedback when we design because then we, on the next design, we can be even better. And so things like that just are so helpful to understand what people are looking for and boy, what we really screwed up or gee, what we did great. All of that is really helpful. Thank you guys so much for uh, asking those questions because I think one thing that's really great is that the questions are being asked uh, and that they're being asked during the design process and even after the design process, asking how we can continue to improve uh, in the realm of sensory awareness and uh, allowing every guest who enters a themed space to feel like they can experience it in a way that works for them. So, guys, this has been an amazing interview. Uh, I want to say thank you one more time for, for myself. Uh, Alice, uh, what do you have to say to our guests? <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I just, gosh, you guys, thank you so much for, for coming on. And, and I know that it's late over there and we've kept you for a while and I just it means so much to us that that people are willing to to talk to us about we've been such fans of of theme parks and and attractions and and uh, we I, we both grew up in Long Beach California we've got this amazing aquarium over here that we oh, yeah. uh, that we love so much and to be able to talk to people that actually have, worked on these spaces that we adore and we've spent so many hours of our lives talking about to hear um to to hear the the process behind it and what goes into making these things it's really it's as honestly it's a dream come true you don't even know how many hours we spent over our lives we've been friends since we were 13 years old and we've talked <laughs> for 15 years now about how about what would it take to design a thing and what what are we missing when we're just seeing it from a fan perspective and to to hear about it is really it's so special thank you so much thank you thank you yeah our pleasure well alice it looks like our time with tammy and emily has come to an end Unfortunately, all good things must end, but this conversation continues on the internet. On the internet. That's right. Alice, you and I can be found at all times on Twitter. Yes, I am at Alice White THP on both Twitter and Instagram. What does the THP stand for? The THP stands for those happy places. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, And I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne, which is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And you can and find the show at Happy Places Pod. That's we're, right. 
we're going to be posting these questions that we discussed with uh, Tammy and Emily, as well as many other questions uh, that we have uh, that, that come to our mind and we want to spark community discussion. But of course, Twitter only lets you type with 280 characters. So if you want to have a longer conversation with us about it, buddy, where should they go? Well, I feel like they are already invited to join us on Discord. Yes, the Discord server. You can get an invitation to join us there. Talk to us about anything and everything. If you send us an email at thosehappyplaces at gmail.com. Buddy, I'd like to extend a very special thank you to Charles Gustine uh, for being one of our uh, very, very excellent Patreon subscribers. Yeah, Charles is subscribed at the D-ticket level as a supporter of the show. You can join at any level, A through E, uh, named after the classic Disneyland ticket levels, uh, for all sorts of cool benefits, including access to our bonus episodes, uh, a couple of blog posts, uh, and some really exciting projects coming up on the Patreon. Excellent. And you can find that, of course, at patreon.com slash thosehappyplaces. Alice, I think I'm going to add some music to this interview. And where would you have gotten such music? I think I'm going to add that music that I found on Kevin McLeod's website. Uh, that's incompetech.com. You see, all of the music there is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. So if I say thank you to Kevin now, we get to use that music and I will post the list of songs in the show notes so everybody can know what songs I use. Excellent. Thank you, Kevin, for your music. I also want to say thank you, of course, to the California Feet Warmers for our excellent theme music. Yeah, that song is called Golden Gate, and it features Phil Alvin. You can find that and many other tracks at www.californiafeetwarmers.com. They are one of my favorite bands. They are wonderful, and they're so gracious to let us use their music. Alice, thank you for doing this show with me. Buddy, this was such a delightful episode as all episodes we do together are i'm very feel very fortunate that uh that we get to do this every week or (laughs) almost every week (laughs) yeah as as often as we can i agree and i wouldn't do it with anybody but you you are my best friend this is the best show on the face (laughs) of the planet (laughs) (laughs) you're my best friend too bud And to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places.